Hi, I'm Victor Milligan, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And you will notice that Jen Isabella did not also say hello. Uh, we want to congratulate Jen for having a new baby boy. She's now the mother of two. And although we're very happy for her, I can speak for myself and Nick, our producer. Nick, I'm not sure how you feel, but I have a high sense of abandonment. Yep. Yep. We'll cope. With me today is Forrester Principal Analyst Fatima Katablu to discuss the algorithm of me. Hey, Victor. Happy to be here. So, Fatima, let's start with some basics. What is an algorithm? Let's just start there just so we don't misread the whole thing. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, An algorithm is a fairly simple thing. It's basically a set of rules that are optimized to an outcome. And typically, it's designed to get to that outcome um, pretty efficiently. So you set the objectives and you set the thing that you want to optimize for, the efficiency. Um, and, And that's what an algorithm really fundamentally is. So in this case, an algorithm would be what is presented to me as a recommendation engine. It could be the ads that I see. It could be the journeys that they think I should be taking. It's it's the companies digitally predicting and acting on what they think will be appropriate for me and importantly, I think in this conversation, serves their interests. Absolutely right. And and also think about, you know, Google Maps or Waze. Um, they're optimizing to get you to where you're going very quickly, and they're running those algorithms real time to optimize for traffic conditions and whether you want to stop for gas or whatever. So I think at the heart of this, based on our prior conversation, is that we are in the age of the customer and the argument goes, the customer is in charge. And I want to put a word fully in charge. Yet uh, there's another part of that story. And that is we're not uniquely in the age of the customer. There's other things afoot. So how does that relate to the algorithms? Yeah, so I've actually been talking about it as though we're kind of in the age of the algorithm. Um, We seem to have a lot of choice as consumers. We seem to have endless choice for products and services and content and media. Um, But the algorithms are really refining and defining what is presented to us. So in a sense, we actually, our, our range of choices is actually constrained by what the algorithm thinks we want or need. So the empowered customer operates within the constraints set by others. That's exactly right. The, what I find interesting about it is that there has been this longstanding discussion about the intelligence of the algorithms, because in some cases, it's not a comment about intent. It's a comment about limitation. Mm-hmm. How much data do they have? What data? What's inferred in that data? And then how well does the algorithm learn from basically my behavior, my reaction to an ad or whatever it might be? So we're kind of in a place where the algorithm, although as to your point, has a big influence, may not be the smartest entity on the planet. That's totally right. Um, what's really interesting to me is not just the sort of pervasiveness of algorithms, but actually the the use cases for them, right? So um, algorithms can change how we feel. Uh, we've, we've seen the Facebook mood manipulation survey from a couple of years ago. Uh, we know that OkCupid okay, has done um, testing on what photos are seen and how people choose certain photos. And I think Tinder's done some of this too. Um, of course, we've talked about the stuff that we buy, so Google Shopping and Amazon recommendations. But also, like, the friends that we have, we've all seen the Facebook, oh, you might know this person and wondered how on earth does Facebook know that I might know that person. Um, 
and recommendations about, you know, what apps we should be downloading and tools we should be using. So the the application of these algorithms is so broad and vast, but we don't know what the inputs are. They're very black box. Um, and we don't actually have any control as individuals on the um, – on the additional inputs to that algorithm, to improving that algorithm for us. We've had several podcasts where we've talked about the influence of Google Home or Alexa. And and one of them is that the theory of the case goes that there's an advocacy that Alexa has for me. The advocacy is not towards Amazon or the merchants that are tied to Amazon, but me. They're reading my preferences. Now, whether that's true or not, that's the theory of the case. Your argument is that the algorithms are sort of serving different interests, and I happen to be a party in that play. I may mm-hmm. not be the protagonist, but I'm a party in the play, and I'm just sort of seeing the byproduct of code at that point in time. Yeah, that's right. Um, so again, think about what an algorithm is. It's set up to optimize for an outcome. Alexa doesn't know what your outcome is. Alexa doesn't know what you want to achieve and what your objectives in your life are. Um, Amazon's making those inferences. The algorithm has a ton of data. It's making those inferences, but they're still constrained by what the business objectives of Amazon are. Right. I want to get to the point of data here because there are countless amount of articles and perspectives about big data, the universality of data, and the fact that you know, there's a surveillance economy that, and people are often sort of bludgeoned or abused based upon the goodness of the data. But I think if you pull back the covers a tad, what you're going to find is the data is not that great, has holes in it, and in it there's a whole set of inferences. And the inferences could be that they placed me in a segment that may not be kind of right. They made some decisions about what data they can see, what they can capture, what they can get. And so we're not really living in a clean data world. So whatever profile exists of yourself or myself, if we looked at it, I'm not sure we'd laugh or cry. (laughs) That's right. Um, You know, you're getting at the heart of something that I think a lot about, which is identity Um, and agency over our identity, which is something that historically humans have had. I mean, we've chosen um, who to tell our secrets to. We've chosen who to keep as part of our sort of collective tribe, whatever. Um, We don't have those choices so much anymore. And when our identity is curated by people sniffing signals, digital signals all over the place, we have no agency or autonomy around that identity anymore. Yeah, and if I show curiosity about something, a bike helmet, Mm -hmm. that's a fairly (laughs) random item, but oh well, they could overread that. They could say, hey, this is a segment. I've just overlearned something, and for a month, I'm like, I'm this other person. Mm -hmm. And so part of it is the algorithms can overread small samples of data because they're attempting to sale. I mean, it's it's a it's a game of sales at that point in time. Yeah, that's totally right. And the the sort of ad ecosystem really reinforces that. So there are enough people, enough advertisers who are willing to bid on people who look like they're interested in bike helmets and bicycling. So of course we want to sniff that signal, and of course we want to turn it into a segment or turn it into a device to which you can serve an ad because there's lots of revenue there. Um, it doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong because no one's really measuring the advertising economy that way. Yeah, I, I was giving a presentation two years ago, so I spent some time assessing who they think I am based upon the ads I saw. And this was a, a discussion I was having about the goodness of targeting. And 
not commenting on what they thought I was, it was not happy. It was not a good outcome. I mean, I was, <laughs> I was minimally unwell, unhappy. There's a bunch of things that were wrong. Um, it did strike me that there's an, not an absence of data, but it's the partiality, which kind of leads me to the next point, which is there's a whole structure around the nature of data. Third-party data, second-party data, and first-party data have dominated decisioning. Different values ascribed to different parts. This opens up the window to zero-party data. Can we talk a little bit about what that is? Because in two parts of our discussion, the algorithm of me, we're, we just talked about the algorithm. Now we're going to talk about me. Mm -hmm. who's, who's me? Mm -hmm. How does me get defined? Yeah, so I'll unpack that a little bit. Um, you referenced uh, the term that we use, zero-party data. Um, I hope it catches on a little bit more in the industry, to be honest with you, because I think it is um, a really valuable way to think about the quality of information that comes from people. So historically, marketers and business people have thought about first-party data as the data that's generated in the course of a transaction, right? You buy something from my company, I collect the information um, about the things that you looked for, what you bought, how you paid for it, um, that kind of stuff, right? Um, Zero-party data is different because it's the data that we think about as being explicitly shared by the individual um, that is different in nature than the data that would come from a transactional interaction. And created by the individual. Created Basically, by the, I create a yeah. version of me. Exactly. So um, the, the typical use case or the typical place that we see zero-party data in a marketer's business is through preference centers and profile management. So if I go to um, a website and they give me options for what kind of content I want to see, um, you know, are you in the in the case of an, of an auto manufacturer, oh, you're in the market for a car, what kind of car are you interested in? I want a hatchback, I want it to have room for a car seat in the back and a muddy dog, right? That's not information that the automaker could ever get any other way. So I call that zero-party data. The consumer has explicitly and intentionally shared it. Use it well. Right? Don't mess up when you use that data as a marketer. Um, and I think that zero-party data could become the foundation for some of this algorithm of me. It kind of goes to the idea that if I create a, a profile of me and it, it triggers ads that I really do want to see, mm -hmm. information I really want to do what have, and, and to your earlier point, an unconstrained view of potential out there, I benefit from that. Mm -hmm. So as opposed to an ad being this point of interruption or them guessing, it becomes a utility, a, a true value to me. It's just more how I want to look at different product sets, that type of thing. Let's take a little history lesson here. This is not the first time this discussion has been had. I mean, there's been some struggles with getting that construct off the ground because it's unclear who makes money and how money is made. Mm -hmm. There's really no natural economic for this. Well, so I would argue with that part a little bit because I actually think that, you know, you were talking about having an unconstrained view of what's out there. I actually think the constrained view is valuable. Like I want my algorithm to filter what's out there. Based upon my your objectives. desires. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and for a marketer, that should be incredibly compelling. Instead of showing me ads or instead of reaching an individual or a device um, that's never going to buy what I'm selling or where 
you know, I'm going to turn on an ad blocker because I'm on a diet and you keep showing me ads for Oreo cookies. Um, that's that's not good for anybody in that's the just ecosystem. Teasing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're just rubbing it in my face now. Um, but I think the the idea that I could say, look, one of my objectives algorithm is to lose weight by summer. Um the, the ads that would be served to me, would it be in support of that? And I'm much more inclined to actually respond to those ads and to be moved by those ads. So I think actually the economic model for marketers should be really plain. Unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily get you scale. And that's what marketers really want is scale. Right. The other consideration is that in the current market, data is fuel, data is currency. I think Jennifer Bilasan said data is bacon. <laughs> All sorts of things data is. It's valuable, which means that someone's making money off of it. And the question is, if I build a profile of me serving my interests, can I make money off that? Because it's, to your point, it's extraordinarily valuable to the marketer because they get to make such good decisions and they their energy is confined to things that will create value versus things that may or may not create value. Who Who makes money in that equation? Because I should, because I'm giving out value to the marketplace. It's almost like royalties or thing. Yeah, so this is the big fallacy. As you know, I've been studying this space for a really long time, and I think this is the big fallacy that has caused so many a great startup to actually fail. Um, when we think about data as, as an asset class, um, it's because there's volume and scale in it. So yes, there are billions and billions of dollars flowing in data trades every day, or every year, rather. That's because people have petabytes of data. You and I are never going to have petabytes of information about ourselves that we're going to like go and sell to a bunch of advertisers, right? Four line <laughs> presumptuous, but I'll buy and I'll, I'll go with you. Um, or I should say, you've got petabytes of data about you, that, uh, <laughs> a, a very minuscule amount of which is probably valuable to anybody else. I actually think that just passed the creepy <laughs> line, but yeah. I'm going to go with your facts, yeah. Um, but I think the idea here is I don't know that I want to make money off of my data. What I do want is for other people not to be able to monetize me to the extent that they are. So I have had the pleasure of speaking with an analyst at Forrester about GDPR. <laughs> uh, wonderful woman. Um, her Talking name about is Enza, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I got to think that this has some meaning to privacy. Because this is a comment about control, who, who defines me mm -hmm. and how I can understand that best. You bet. I actually think a lot of this stuff could start in Europe um, for two reasons. Of course, GDPR. I, if I've got the mechanism by which to say you can't, let's just reframe here, under GDPR, a consumer has the, the opportunity, a data subject has the opportunity to say you can't do automated processing on much of my data. Um, I can withdraw that consent. But if I can say, I give you the right to do automated processing and use AI on the data that I've provided willingly through my algorithm or whatever, um, then suddenly the game is back on. Suddenly we now can start doing really cool innovative things through AI and machine learning again. Um, the other side to this is that Europe's just better at identity, some parts of Europe. Um, namely sort of Estonia and Finland. and um, They've done a great job with digital identity. And those countries enjoy a very different level of trust with their citizenry. They have highly digitized 
economies and citizenry. Um, so they actually could enable a digital identity and an entire framework for an algorithm of me for their citizens, which is a fascinating idea. And so, you know, if you start to think about how that um, disseminates through the rest of Europe, I think it could be really compelling. Yeah, I know we, we had this conversation before we came on air where if I were to create an identity for me, there would be a, a huge ambition to make that identity slightly or materially better than who I actually am. Mm -hmm. um, when you bring in the government, they have records. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, you do create the sense of the accuracy question mm -hmm. because, you know, creating my own identity doesn't necessarily describe accuracy, just may describe ambition mm -hmm. or delusion yeah. for that matter. Yeah. So how, how would that work if a government entity began to be an arbiter or creator curator, whatever word you want to put in that. Yeah. So I think the possibly the fallacy here is that there's a single identity. True. Um, and I think about my, just my analog life and I curate my identity. Um, I mean, you and I have a professional relationship. We have chatty conversations all the time, um, but it's a very different identity that I'm presenting to you than I would to somebody I've known for 35 years. Um, so we already do the curation of our identity and there are places in the analog world where I have to prove who I am. Um, if I want to walk into a bar, I have to prove that I'm over the age of 21. I don't have to do that in a lot of other places. And, and I think that's, that metaphor, um, follows through to digital identity as well. So, so let's play this out. It's five years from now. Mm -hmm. Um, we see the algorithm of me become a thing. Mm -hmm. What are the different scenarios? How, I mean, because I suspect there's not a path. There are possible paths here. What are the possible paths of how this would work and who gets what? Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm, I would love to hear from our listeners too about this. If anyone out there uh, is thinking about this stuff, has some interesting ideas, wants to brainstorm about uh, what the algorithm of me could look like, um, please reach out to us. You can actually email us at social at .com, and that'll get forwarded to me and I'll reach out to you to do a research interview. I would love to hear from you. But I'll tell you the, the couple of scenarios that I've thought about. Um, the first one is um, very personal. So I've got an algorithm and I've set it to optimize for three goals. And there's some entity out there that I've paid to build me this algorithm. Um, and they're hosting it and managing it. And so the goals that I've set for myself are um, short and long term. So long term, I want to save for a down payment on a house. Um, more near term, I want to lose a few pounds by summer. Um, and even more sort of near term and longitudinally, I want to see more of specific friends. There's some friends I just never get to hang out with. So marketers could reach me in online ads when that their product or service meets one of my objectives. Mm -hmm. So sh send me information about, um, you know, uh, uh, happy hours locally to where my friend's office is, and I'll go meet her there and we can have this happy hour together. That serves one of my goals. Um, so I think there's actually like products and services and advertisers that would still make money. Um, and I think I would happily pay, you know, some amount of money to have this algorithm built and maintained for me. It's almost the same way that you have, if I have websites that serve my family or whatever, I will go to a service 
and they will maintain it over a period of time. But this is sort of identity as a service kind of thing. Exactly right. The other thing that I've thought a lot about is that um, algorithms, I think, um, will pretty soon be the only way that we can actually tell fake news from the real stuff. Um, so you've seen all of these new videos, and I think you, you and Jeff Pollard talked about this, um, where they can superimpose people's faces onto specific kinds of videos. Yes. Um, and it's going to be increasingly hard for humans to discern what's fake and what's real. But I'll tell you what, an algorithm could probably do it. So I think even there, we might see some movement towards, I want an algorithm that makes sure that what I'm seeing is real. Hmm. So it's a protective force mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we've talked in this podcast about the role of some of the intelligent agents that bridges the digital to the human being in a way that's advocacy-driven. I'm going to understand, know, and work on behalf of the human being. Is that one of the scenarios of being at the center of the identity creation and management? I think it could be. Yeah, I think um, there's a number of scenarios there that should be compelling to businesses. Um, That said, the intelligent agents today are, are optimized for all the wrong stuff. And they're when you think about businesses that are fundamentally ad-supported, how do you move them into being, um, you know, agnostic to the advertisers um, because they're they're supporting me? So I think there's some opportunity there. Um, I think about things like if the regulator should come along and split up Facebook, would there be a nonprofit arm of Facebook that might do something like this? That's an that's an interesting idea. Carries a lot of identity in it. Yeah. So there's two parts of it that are curious to me. The first one is the age of the customer argues that it's a buyer's market. But the reality, it's a bit of a blend here. It's a bit of a seller's market as well because they have techniques, algorithms, tools to guide me to places they want me to go. And I work within that constraint or that context. So it's not simply a buyer's market. Exactly right. So in part, this podcast sort of says, hey, there's something imperfect out there and it could endure, but that's not actually the intent of AI or machine learning or all these things that are intended to actually bring the buyer's market to scale, meaning I as a human being can be served as an as a entity of one or a segment of one and at scale. Well, that's mm-hmm. the, a big ambition in the sky. Mm-hmm. This begins to bridge towards that by creating a digital asset that can scale mm-hmm. because the algorithm simply can work at that scale. I mean, is that kind of the, the premise of this is you see there's some natural forces lining up to make this real this time, if you will? I really do. Um, you know, I think when I look at some of the tools that are available to people now, um, you know, there's, there's somebody at uh, Mozilla who just – um, created a little bit of JavaScript code that you can run in, in the Firefox browser. It's an extension, and it makes it look like you're coming from Europe. So it doesn't matter where you are, but you browse the web as though you're European, um, giving you GDPR rights, right? Um, ad- oh, wow. I didn't yeah. catch that last part. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so so these there's a huge sort of hacktivist culture in on the web that I think is gaining a lot more credibility, a lot more visibility. Uh, you and I have talked about the Brave browser, which I use and I'm really fond of. And the idea with Brave is, yeah, we'll whitelist the people who use good ads, make sure they're not fraudulent, and 
We'll give you a way to pay for those ads. We'll, we'll distribute money to them, um, to those publishers. Um, so I think there's a lot of sort of um, interest and ambition around creating these tools. The challenge for me is will marketers and brands and businesses step up to the plate this time? And will they become willing participants in this sort of economy where consumers have more control and have more empowerment? Um, or are we going to do what we did back in the do not track days where we said, oh, we're not going to pay attention to the do not track header. Uh, we don't trust it. And now we end up with the kind of stuff that we see today, ad blocking and GDPR. Yeah, I think it's like a lot of things, which is the underlying premise is the economics work. And I think the discussions we've had here is that you're seeing sort of an exhausted ad-supported models coming to grips with itself. The mm -hmm. question is, does it go to the very last drip or does it take advantage of some of these new technologies, new ideas, and sort of pivot a bit? And if someone pivots, does everyone have to fast follow? Because it just creates a, a better outcome for humans and humans will, they're therefore migrate towards it. Yeah. So we're at a time and place, Fatima, where GDPR is coming to a theater near us. It is raising our attention, in some cases our hackles, towards privacy as a human right, identity as an important thought process as it relates to a human, meaning identity as fairness, not identity as exploitation kind of thing. We have an ad-supported model that's under duress. We have activists at a play that will expose. We sort of have the ingredients for change. So what does it mean if I'm listening to this and I'm saying, gosh, I, I don't know exactly what this means for me. I need to learn more and I should reach out to Fatima to give you my ideas. But what does it mean to sort of get, get hold of this thoughts? Because inside them is wisdom. Yeah, well, I don't have all the answers. I mean, this is um, this is a body of research that we're working on now. Um, what I will say is, I think brands, businesses, marketers should listen to people more. And I frequently walk into rooms of marketers and give speeches, and I have to remind them to take their marketer hats off and put their human hats on. And that's not a thing I should have to do. So I think if we actually start to ask questions about reasonable expectation of how people's data is being used. If we ask questions about, I want my data used that way, but I want my mom's data used that way, right? I mean, it's, the, it's tropey, but it's true. Um, those are the questions that a marketer should be asking now in order to prepare for this eventuality of an algorithm of me. Right. I want to jump into the last point. It's a funny thing about identity and marketers. Because sometimes when I think about it, and I'm going back to your comment about scale, is somebody wins and somebody loses. So a marketer that wants to operate at scale, the marketer wins, the human loses. The, the picture you're painting of identity is the human wins, the marketer loses. But it's possible to kind of wrap this into a place where there's winners around the economics kind of work because the marketers will preserve energy and do the things that create the most value based upon real information and the humans naturally benefit from that engagement. I mean, this doesn't have to be a win-lose, fix-pie game. No, this is totally not zero-sum. Um, you know, I think the fallacy, again, is that we that the marketer will lose anything. Um, I just wrote a report um, around database marketing, like everything old is new again. And it's really true. We're going back to direct marketing principles to get digital advertising right. 
And I think that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about um, advertising doesn't have to be about the number of impressions, it's about the quality of the impressions. A thousand dear occupants doesn't. Exactly. Thank you so much for your time, Fatima. It was a pleasure to be here, Victor. And again, if you'd like to reach out to Fatima to provide some inputs or questions as it relates to the algorithm of me, please do email us at social at forester.com. We'd love to hear from you and we'd love to speak with you. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.